Amen. Thank you. Well, good morning. I am so glad to see you all. And by the way, in the congregation this morning, there are a number of people whom I know really well. Some are members of your church, and if you need to know things about them in their past, for a fee, I can tell you some things that you would love to hear. Uh, The truth of the matter is that when I see people uh, with whom I've had the privilege of pastoring and ministering in days gone by, I figure that they just didn't get it the first time around. And so I'm going to have one more shot at them this morning, but have sympathy on them. I see the uh, Ronax back there from Arkansas who used to live right up here along with a whole bunch of us in Owasa. This church actually, uh, we built one of the houses that we built out in this area backs up to this church's parking lot. I am so glad to be here. This has been wonderful. Thank you for the worship. Thank you for your friendship. It's been great. I'm so appreciative. And I thank Chris and uh, your church staff. They've been just so wonderful to, uh, to me and, and uh, appreciate Chris. Chris, of course, is back at his home church, South Lindsay. I had the privilege of being his, pastor, his uh, parents' pastor, but uh, he's back at South Lindsay on their 75th anniversary today and helping them to celebrate that. So uh, at any rate, when he comes back in town, say, hey, that Tom Ellip, he's great. You need to have him back a whole bunch of times, okay? So you just just tell him that and just keep telling him that every time you see him. And it probably won't have any effect on him whatsoever. Um, Anyway, so many people that I've known and uh, gotten to know and also a member of your church is my grandson, Nate. Nate, I'm so glad to look down here and see you. Diana and I, by the way, she couldn't be here this morning, actually because I told her we've been traveling, uh, like we've been busy as a stump full of termites, and we've just, just been traveling so much that I told her last night, you need to stay home. And uh, so that's where, that's where she is. She, I could tell she really she wanted to do that. And uh, so she's there, and uh, God has blessed us. Uh, we, we married. This is second marriage for both of us. My wife of 49 years passed away of cancer some years ago. Her husband of 47 years passed away of Lou Gehrig's disease some years ago. And um, as God would have it, he brought us together sometime later. And uh, we're having more fun than shooting rats at the city dump. You know, honestly, just for, for our age, you know, I... I uh, <laughs> I, I, it's just pretty neat. I, I've, um, uh, we have between us six kids and 33 grandkids and 10 great-grandkids and nine kids like Nate who are our grandkids who are in college. So if you made a whole lot of money in the oil business, I'd like to visit with you a little bit after the, the service this morning. Uh, the, the other day, you'll, you'll appreciate this, the other day, uh, Good Friday, uh, everybody was shut down because of COVID, and so uh, we tried to figure out a way to do this. We had kids at the time ministering on four different continents, and so we got the 
uh, the video there on the screen on our kitchen table and had a grandson and his family in Greece and then we had uh, Nate's folks here in the Middle East working with uh, uh, underserved and displaced people and then we had a, a daughter and her husband who are in Chiang Mai, Thailand all these grandkids and of course kids here in the States and if you, if you can imagine this on the TV, on the computer screen, I got to lead my family in four, on four continents, all shut down. I got to lead them in the Lord's Supper. And so we had a Lord's Supper. It was just, an, it was just a, a neat deal. It was just very, very special time uh, for us. So uh, how's this COVID thing doing for you, huh? I, I heard... You know, it's, it's, it's having an effect on you. I mean, half the people I meet are half mad. I mean, they just walk around with a hair trigger. You know, they're just upset. Between the COVID and the election and the news, of course, is designed to keep you on the edge of your seat because that's the way they'll sell commercials. They've got to get you back by making you scared to death. Nine-pound hailstones. We'll tell you about that next hour. Anyway, so everybody is going around chewing their fingernails, you know. I, I heard about this guy who was asked, I just have to tell you this, who was asked by his friend, he said, this being shut up with your wife, is that okay for your marriage? He said, yeah, no problems. He said, well, he said, the other day she did holler down from upstairs. She said, honey, uh, do you have a sharp pain between your shoulders like somebody's made a voodoo doll and sticking pins in it? And he said, no, why? And she said, how about now? Well, anyway, you'll, some of y'all will get that later on, and you'll... I told y'all that on the phone this morning, didn't I? And uh, anyway, uh, it's just a delight to be here. And as we think about what all these circumstances in life are making us, uh, that, that brings me to the, to the text and the, my purpose for being here this morning. Would you open your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and just, just keep it open there for a little bit, and we'll come to that scripture in just a moment. Uh, I applaud your pastor's determination to speak on the church, the doctrine of the church these weeks. So many people are afraid to even tackle that situ you know that whole issue because uh, they're afraid they'll disturb somebody's idea that the church is more like a club or you know they're going to ostracize some but it is so important doctrine is like uh, well doctrine in a, to the body of Christ is like your skeleton is to your body you don't always see it but it has to be there you have no mobility no leverage no capacity to achieve and so to to study Doctrine is a, is a good thing. And so uh, my hat's off to Chris for doing that. Um, and I know some of the things that you've studied. It's important, just to review this, it's important to remember that, that there is a vision. We have a vision. It's painted for us very clearly. In fact, it's stated twice in the book of Revelation. Every, everything a person does, they do according to a vision. person who's running track, he has in his mind a vision of crossing that finish line. If you're, if you're uh, in some other kind of athletic competition, you have this vision of competing and then winning. 
A businessman has a vision. This is, this is what this is going to become. I mean, we don't just stick our heads down and do stuff. We, we play according to a vision, all right? And, and, the, and the, the vision for the church is clearly stated. It is what? A multitude from every language, people, tribe, and nation knowing and worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. Twice in the book of Revelation. There it is. There is the Lord on his throne and surrounding his throne. There is what? A multitude from every language, people, tribe, and nation knowing and worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where we are headed one of these days. And as I said, the Lord wants us to make no mistake about it. It's right there twice in the last book of the Bible. Now, in order to arrive at the vision, we need then to... to, to to be people who are on mission. Mission is the way you achieve the vision, okay? You understand that. And so each of us, as a part of this, we have a mission. And, and that's clear in the Scripture. Uh, the, the Bible makes, in fact, it's called, we call it the great co-mission because Jesus says, I'm in this with you. We are co-missioned with him. What is it? Making disciples in fulfillment of the Great Commission, right? That's the church's mission on this. You don't have to be confused about that in the least bit. The vision, multitudes surrounding the throne, knowing, worshiping the Lord. How do we get there? This is our mission, making disciples in fulfillment of the Great Commission. So you drop that plumb down, plumb line down anywhere in your life, and you can discover, first of all, whether you're fulfilling the mission, whether you're on target, and secondly, you'll discover where you are in that. So the question is, what needs to happen in order for us to do what the Lord wants us to do and be right now in the midst of all this mess? How do we fulfill that mission? And so I want to suggest this to you. It is going to require of you, it's going to require of me, what I would like to call this morning fresh surrender. The word fresh means something not previously known or not previously experienced, something not previously done. Brand new, fresh. Surrender. Surrender is not commitment. That depends on you, your effort. It's not dedication. That depends on you and your effort. It's not faithfulness. Faithfulness is good, but that's depending on you and your effort. This means fresh Conceding, giving up to the will of the Lord. Fresh surrender. That means submitting to his authority in your life. See, we get this idea that we come to know Christ, and from that moment on we do what we best can do, and we do it the best way we know how to do it, and we do it till we die, and we go to heaven, and God says, well done, you're good and faithful servant. It's <sighs> not exactly right. The truth of the matter is, the moment, if you have received Christ, the moment you received Christ, God set out on a, on a personal, personal agenda. You know what it is? He is at work conforming you and me to the image of His dear Son. Romans eight twenty nine, And He may use a different order of worship for you than He does for me, but He brings us 
to these moments in our life when we have a new understanding, a fresh understanding, and he's asking us in these moments. And I think COVID, for instance, all this mess, this, everybody walks around with, you know, they've got a face mask on and wrinkles in their brow. Part of that's because they're trying to figure out who they're talking to. The other part of it is just because they're worried. So, so what is this making you? What is God asking of you, this church right now? I believe it is fresh surrender, something new, something as yet unexperienced, something as yet undone, and it involves submission to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, bowing before His Lordship. Now, as an example of this, I'm going to ask you to look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And when we come to the end of this service, we're going to have a time of invitation. That's not something men thought up. You know, say, hey, you know these preachers, they thought up this invitation. No, no, the invitation is God's idea. I wish I had time this morning to take you on a study of the invitation. We'd start in Genesis with the first invitation, God inviting Noah and his family into the ark, which Jesus said is a picture of salvation, all the way to the book of Revelation where the Spirit and the bride, the church, say come. In the middle, of course, Jesus says, come unto me. And that is because the basic operating principle of the Christian church is faith. There's an intellectual side of faith. That's, I know God can do. There is an emotional side of faith. I want God to do, but there's also a part of faith that we overlook, and that is what we call the volitional side of faith, and that, that is where we reach up and take the Lord by the hand and aggressively cooperate with Him. If you were to take, uh, for instance, just the 12th chapter of the book of uh, Hebrews and study the roll call of men and women of faith, not one person there is famous because of how he felt. Or, or, or what he thought. They're famous for their faith because of what they did in response to what God said. Abel offered. Enoch walked. Noah prepared. Abraham went out. Jacob and Isaac blessed. Moses forsook. Active verbs. There's always an attendant activity. And so faith's not just feeling or knowing. Faith is doing what God says. What does that have to do with the invitation? Well, when preachers are preaching or when Jesus was ministering, there's a sense in which we're like an attorney arguing a case before a jury. You're the jury. And you argue a case for what? For a verdict. And the invitation is opportunity for you to render the verdict. Jesus did this. I mean, to a fault, Jesus did this. He could have stood outside any town in Galilee and said, I want everybody to be saved. Or the following people, I've got a little list here, are going to be uh, healed. He didn't do it that way. He went to them individually and he said, you, stretch out your hand. Uh, You men, go show the priest. You, you take up your, see the attendant activity? You, take up your bed and walk. And so at the close of the service, we'll have an attendant activity. And I'll invite to this altar 
uh, as close as you comfortably can get there and do it right, every person will say, you know what, God, I see this area of my life. You need fresh surrender. You're asking for it. And here at this altar, which is where we die, that's what an altar is, here at this altar, I give up. I say, yes, I surrender to you in that area. Because sin, listen, I'm talking to the church, sin has a way of encroaching on our lives. I mean, we have so normalized demonism right now that, that there are a lot of people in this church who don't, don't even think, don't even see it as demonism. They just think people behave bad or got bad feelings or something like that. You say, what do you mean? Well, the thief, Jesus said, comes to kill, steal, and destroy. We see it on, every day on television. He said, well, that's just a problem, you know, they had hurt feelings and uh, uh, we need it. No, no, no. We have so normalized it that we have been taken out of warfare praying which is what we ought to be doing right now. Massive warfare praying for our, our nation, for this world. So, fresh surrender. Fresh surrender is what we are, we're looking at this morning. The example I'd like to use is the Apostle Paul. Huh? Paul? <laughs> where, where did he go wrong? You don't have to go wrong to have to have fresh surrender. It, you just have to come to a new element in your character that God wants to change. Life, it's a process. He is, his agenda is conforming us to the image, and he uses, he uses our life to do that. So let me, let me give you an illustration. When Paul wrote 2 Corinthians... This was only the fifth letter that he had written. He had written First and Second Thessalonians, Galatians, First Corinthians, and now Second Corinthians. He was only about one-third of the way into his missionary journey, which, by the way, did not last too long. I mean, it was like a shooting star. I mean, he, this is only, he, his first letter was about 50 A.D. This was written about 56 A.D., by 60, about 65 A.D., I mean, we're, 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 he'll be off the scene. Think of that. And in that time, he changed, two, touched two-thirds of the Mediterranean world with the gospel. How do you do that? Wrote 13 of the books, letters, in the Bible. But up to this point, he'd only written five or four. This was the fifth. And in this letter, we see that God found an area of Paul's life where he needed to adjust. There was something in his life that needed to change. You know what it was? Paul was drifting into the thought that it was because of who he was that people ought to listen to him. Wow. Look, look with me, in, 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 for instance, in chapter 11. Paul says in verse 17, he says, you Corinthians, you don't even listen to me. He said, he said, he said I'm going to do something. He said, even the Lord wouldn't do this. I'm going to boast. Since you guys think it's so good to boast, I'm going to boast. Oh, are you, Paul? Yeah, so he said, even the Lord wouldn't do this, but I'm going to boast. And he, he said, if you keep reading in this chapter, look at, look at verse 22. 
He said, let me tell you about my heritage. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I'm more so. So come on, big boys. If you think you've got the heritage, I've got better one than you do. My papers are, are pretty, you know, these are, these are pretty good, my pedigree. And then he says, oh, oh, you think it's because you, you've been hurt? Well, okay, take off your shirt. Let's look at your arms and back, all right? Because let me just tell you about my hurts. Are they Hebrews? Verse 22. Um, excuse me. Um, he said, I speak as if insane. And look, if you will, please, in, the, in verse uh, 23. I speak as if insane. I'm more so in far more labors, far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often with without food and cold and exposure. Hey, hey, come on, show me your scars. I just, you know what he's trying to do? He's, he's, he's boasting here. And then he says, not only do I have, have the heritage and the, and the hurts, I've got the heart. He said, apart from such external things, I'm just continuing to read. There's a daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who's weak without not being weak? Who's led into sin without my intense concern? He said, nobody cares like I care. And then he eases into chapter 12, and he says, just in case you guys think, you know, you're something on a stick here, let me, let me just tell you, I've got something you don't have. I've had a heavenly vision. And he starts out in verse 1. He said, I, I once knew a man, and he's talking about himself. Now, here's what I want you to see. Paul was doing something that was very natural, and that was the problem. He was exalting himself as if that was going to make it easier for him to do his work with the Corinthian church. And it is as if, now this is all under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God just slapped him on the face and said, hold on, big guy. That's not the way I do things. So look with me at verse 7. He says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, in case you missed that word because, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, in case you missed it, to keep me from exalting myself. So what does he say? He said, I decided, okay, I'll pray about this, and then we'll go on. He said, so concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me, and God said, mm -mm, no. No, Paul, you being all I want you to be requires a thorn in the flesh. And so the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For power, you want, you want my power to show up? Power is perfected in weakness. And so Paul writes about his surrender. He says, okay, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so the power of Christ may dwell in me if that's what it takes. Therefore, I'm well content with weaknesses, insults, distresses, persecutions, difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. I see it, Paul said, fresh surrender.
Now, what was on the other side of his surrender? What was God waiting to do? What, what do you think God's waiting to do on the other side of your fresh surrender? Well, in Paul's case, eight of the 13 letters in the Scripture were waiting. In fact, immediately after this came the book of Romans, Paul's magnum opus. The, the shadow of that falls across this worship service this morning. Two-thirds of the Mediterranean world touched with the gospel. Four prison epistles. You think Paul would have been really glad about spending time in prison if he hadn't gone through this moment? No. No, but when God said, no, if it keeps you humble, so there he ends up in prison. And from it, he writes his prison epistles. And finally, pens to Timothy. Fought a good fight. Finished the course. Kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of glory, which God, the righteous judge, will give me, and not to me only, but to all those who love his appearing as he was writing out to the believers in Philippi and then saying to Timothy, please come before winter. And he died. But what if this far into his journey, he had just decided he had done enough. There was no need for any fresh surrender. Everybody already knew he was the big daddy. And what if you sit here this morning and decide, I've done enough. I mean, I'm here Sunday morning in COVID. Hey, what are you asking for? What's waiting on the other side of your fresh surrender? Now, I'd like to make four very brief statements about the term fresh surrender. All right? You might just want to jot these down in the margin of your Bible. First of all, it is a persistent demand. It's, it is not an unusual thing for God to show up and touch an area of your life that needs an adjustment and say, will you give up? I challenge you to find one person in the Bible whom God used greatly who did not right up to the end of life have to go through times where fresh surrender was demanded. Here's Abraham. Let's just start in, in Genesis. Here's Abraham. I mean, after all, God's made all these promises to him. What else is necessary? Well, there's going back to Bethel after he blew it down in Egypt. Well, there's, 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 there's saying, okay, God, I trust you enough that I'm willing to let Sodom take the good land, and I'll just take this. There's that moment when God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, and take him to the mountain I show you and sacrifice him. We'll find out something about your heart and your faith. Fresh surrender. That's just Abraham. Just keep going. I mean, you, you can, here's Jacob at the brook Jabbok. Here, here's Joshua standing before the children of Israel after his, his mentor Moses had come to frequent times of fresh surrender. Lord, God, these people, what in the world are they doing? If you will forgive their sin, if not, blot me, I pray you out of the book which you've written. Here's David, the king. Psalm 51, pouring out his heart, and you caught me, Lord, against you, against you only have I sinned. 
And then you go into the go into the New Testament, all these people that God used, not just Paul. How about Peter? I mean, you talk about a mixture of stardust and mud. I mean, there is Peter. And and over and over, there's this side meeting. Peter, I need to talk with you. Let, 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 let's, let's, let's. Till finally, after his resurrection, Jesus challenges Peter at the level of his love. New surrender is what he's asking, like fresh surrender. And not many days after that, Peter saw more. This was what was waiting for that. Peter saw more people follow Jesus at the end of a three-minute sermon than Jesus saw follow himself at the end of three years of earthly ministry. So, so, so what's awaiting? You know what it is God speaks. He's put his finger on something in your life, and you know what it is, and he's awaiting your surrender, fresh surrender. So it is a persistent demand. The second thing I'd like to say is this. It's a proper description. I mean, this, the, the, the term fresh surrender is a proper description. Because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about God loving you and me so much that he doesn't just say, okay, there, you're going to heaven, and leave us alone. But he uses our entire life to bring us to new mountaintops and say, are you re- I've got something else for you. If, are you ready right here to take the, Are you ready for fresh surrender? Somebody wrote years ago, and I love to quote this point. I almost quote it so often. But when God wants to drill a man and thrill a man, and skill a man, and when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world will be amazed, watch his methods. Watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers it and hurts him, and with mighty blows converts him in the trial shapes of clay, which only God understands, and his tortured heart's crying, and he lifts beseeching hands, how he bends and sometimes breaks whom his good he undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses, and with every purpose fuses him, and by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. So you've come to this point, you look at the baggage in your life, I don't know what hurts you have, I don't know what questions you have about the future. I mean, honestly, do you know what I see at levels I have never seen before in the church? People with fear. It's the election, it's COVID, it's, where's God in this? Perfect love casts out all fear. God hasn't given us the spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a, of a sound mind. So this is, a, this is a proper description. Third thing I want to say is this, and that is that it's a profitable discipline. It works. Now, I use the word discipline because... I think you know, when God deals with his children, he never punishes us. You say, well, that's not true. I don't read the Bible. No, no, not his children. Once you come to know Jesus Christ, Christ has taken your punishment for sin, all sin, all of time. He's taken your punishment to the cross. He does not punish you. Punishment, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, you whacked her, I whack you. That's punishment. That's 
It doesn't accomplish anything except unless you vent your emotions. So what does the Bible say God does for us? He disciplines us. Discipline is different than punishment because discipline says you have a future. I believe in you. In fact, I believe so much in you that I'm going to stop what I'm doing and take time to discipline you. I'm going to work with you because I'm at work conforming you to the image of my dear son. Parents could learn about that in dealing with their own children. They think they have discipline when they really just shouted at somebody. So this is a profitable discipline. The Bible says all discipline seems to be tedious to us. He said, but to those who are exercised by it, I mean, just in, in Hebrews chapter 12, he says to those who are exercised by it, and that word is gymnao. We got our word gymnasium from it. It yields something, the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Isn't that what happened to Paul? I mean, God brought him to this point. He said, I um, have, a new, I have a new assignment for you, Paul, the rest of your life. Oh, I've got so much to do, man. I'm sort of king of the church. I have written, hey, Lord, I'm in the process of writing uh, my fifth letter. <laughs> and uh, you, you know, that the Lord says, well, you know, if you're really going to be like me, I've got something that you don't want. And it's going to require fresh surrender. But it will be profitable. It'll be profitable. How profitable was that? Well, eight more letters, two-thirds of the Mediterranean world, an effective life. I didn't say a successful life. Some in this room, if you could just be a success, hey, you can do that. You can t numbers are like people. I mean, lean on them long enough, they'll tell you whatever you want to hear. I mean, you know, just, no, but the key is being effective with your life. You only have this life. If I took a stick of dynamite and went out here in the parking lot and, you know, think of your life, lighted the fuse and threw it in the air, and it would explode successfully. It couldn't do any more than what it did. Everything, heat, light, noise. Come back five or ten minutes later, you wouldn't know what happened. But... If I take that same stick of dynamite and go to a rock quarry and find a seam and drill a hole and put the same stick of dynamite, same man, same woman, put it in the hole, in a millisecond I can change the landscape of the world forever. That's what God wants for you, to be effective, not just merely successful, to change the landscape, the spiritual landscape of your world forever. But it requires fresh surrender. So that brings me to the last thing. And that is fresh surrender also means there is a personal decision that has to be made, right? Person, nobody, person next to you can't make this? No. It has to be you. It has to be you. For this thing, Paul said, I, I besought the Lord three times, I, maybe more. I implored the word. You can't get any stronger than what he said. I, who wants a thorn in the flesh? That word thorn, a stob. <coughs> who wants that? We don't even know what it was. Out of that, when I heard the Lord say, my grace is sufficient for you, and it's in your weakness that power will be perfected, 
most gladly therefore. If that's what it means. Bring it on. Afflictions, distresses, persecutions. Or when I'm weak, really I'm strong in the strength of the Lord. I have a, uh, I have a friend. In fact, my grandson Nate has met him. He's uh, 90 years of age. He was a missionary for most of his, well, virtually all of his mission career in Vietnam. He, he remained as a missionary in Vietnam during the war. He did not leave. A real hero to me. His name is Sam James. I always teased him about having two front names, but that's it, Sam James. He said one day in the middle of his uh, missionary experience, he said, uh, things just weren't going my way. And he said, frankly, I was a little upset, and I thought I had a right to be upset. I'd come over here, was missionary to the Vietnamese. I was giving up my life, my country. I was trying to work with these people. Things weren't going my way. And he said, I finally just thought I better tell the Lord about this, that he wasn't doing it right. And so he said, I got down on my knees, my bed, and I began to pray. And I said, Lord, you know I'm here in this country because I love the Vietnamese. And he said, there was this long silence. And he said, the Lord spoke to my heart and said, no, 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 Sam, you're not there because you love the Vietnamese. You're there because I love the Vietnamese. Fresh surrender. So I don't know what it is in your life that is pushing you toward this. What concerns or pains or fears or frustrations. I don't know what your stob that just won't go away like medicine doesn't reach it and hot pad doesn't get to it and the jacuzzi won't still there won't go away those kids don't come around and the government didn't do the right thing and but I would adventure to say that God is awaiting your fresh surrender and who knows but God what's on the other side of that wow I know what's this side of it just more the same but if you would just say to him Lord I give up I surrender who knows what awaits that would you bow your head? The invitation has even begun right now. You may just need to get up and start coming to this altar. If you just need to say to the Lord here as an individual, as a couple, as a family, um, pastor will be, pastors will be here. Um, they'll be properly masked and everything. So you just come. You want to join this church. That's wonderful. That would be great if, if your heart's desire to trust the Lord as your Savior. That's great. But maybe you just need to come and stand for a few moments and cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, today I want to say to you, it is my heart's desire to surrender afresh.
to you. So, Father in heaven, I pray that as people come to this altar, that's it, just come on right now, as people come to this altar to say yes to you, that in their heart there would be that joy of knowing on the other side, on the other side, who knows but God, what awaits you. God bless you. Just continue to come. Let's stand together in a spirit of prayer. Please just begin singing, and this is our invitation time. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Today I surrender.